Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Lorraine Usher. Lorraine is the CEO of Lawburn Housing Association, a company which provides housing across Dumfries and Galloway in the southwest of Scotland and has a portfolio of almost two and a half thousand and properties. Lorraine, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. Thank you, thank you and thank you for um, asking me to join you on the programme. I'm delighted to be here. And it's a real pleasure having you join us, Lorraine. Um, the purpose of this discussion is to initially establish your take on leadership. So if we dive straight in by taking that word leader aside for a moment and considering that in a bit more depth, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you. What should a leader be in your eyes? Mm-hmm. Um, well, a leader should definitely be a good role model. And a leader, especially in a time of crisis, um, as we've just experienced with our COVID-19 um, pandemic, I think um, a leader should be a good role model. She should be a good listener. She should, he or she, sorry, <laughs> should be um, willing, not willing to do anything that they're asking their staff to do and to be supportive and to ensure the health and well-being of the people that they work with. And considering that the COVID-19 situation, as you rightfully said there, has been one of the real tests of leadership um, in our time, Lorraine, um, just how difficult has it been from your point of view navigating the uh, the pandemic over the last few months? Um, well, initially, it was quite challenging because it was new to, to us all. We've never, you know, I've never led an organisation through a pandemic, and I'm sure many others haven't. So first of all, it was establishing safe working practices and making sure that our staff were well looked after, that they had all of the resources they needed to work safely and effectively from home. And once we'd um, addressed that issue, it was then about making sure people's health and well-being was we were looking at working collaboratively. We were looking at ensuring we still had that social engagement when we couldn't have our water cooler conversations or catch-ups in the kitchen. And we did a lot of work around having that social interaction. And it was a key focus at the start of our homeworking um approach that to ensure people were still connecting and actually we found using um, the remote working systems that we have that we actually do have more time to connect because we have less travel we work in a rural area so we're more focused in the time that we are working with our customers and we have more time to work with our colleagues and make sure we maintain that connection even though we're geographically dispersed and remote. And considering that the COVID-19 situation has had a significant impact on our working practices, of course, we've had to adapt to different working conditions, be it new safety procedures for those continuing to work on sites and others who've had to adapt to remote home working. Um, There's been a great deal of uh, discussion about how this is going to impact the permanent way that we do business in this country. And I'm right in saying, um, I believe, aren't I, Lorraine, do correct me if I'm wrong, that you've already taken the decision at your company to transition to permanent home working following the, uh, the pandemic. So um, do you think that that's something that you can see continuing um, for the long term future or do you see that there may be a return to the office environment over the next sort of five to ten years? I think this is this is a really um, this is a, a really interesting one for me because, yes, we have made the decision. We made the decision on the 30th of June. 
we did have a strategy to move to home working prior to the pandemic because we were we're a rurally dispersed area. We have a commitment in our strategic plan to build great communities and as well as creating an overhead saving and um, we have to work with a value for money strategy because we work in social housing. But we also recognise there are many other benefits to home working, reducing our carbon footprint, we're in a rural area, um, improved health and wellbeing. And sustaining, the big one for us is about sustaining small rural communities. Now, I know there's already a discussion about the challenges of maintaining the urban um, communities and the town centres with mm. the home working and how people have now been encouraged to return to work. But from a rural perspective, we can see how home working will actually help to regenerate those rural communities. So rather than our staff travelling into the larger conurbations in Dumfries and Galloway um, of Dumfries and Stranra, if we actually keep them in their rural communities, they'll be spending and investing in their local shops, they'll be engaging in their local communities, they'll be available to do volunteering. I know personally, I've signed up for Meals on Wheels in my community because I'm in my home during the day and I can um, allocate that hour to working on Meals on Wheels. So we see as an organisation there are lots of benefits. I think this is going to be a discussion for some time going mm. forward, the rural and the urban benefits. Um, challenges of home working but as an organisation that's based in a rural community we see there are a lot of advantages for sustaining the economy and the communities from our home working decision. I can certainly see where you're coming from uh, from that point of view uh, Lorraine and with regards to the challenges that that does throw up of course the need to sort of maintain coordination and leadership if you will from a distance and also that sort of social isolation challenge how do you um, think that you'll be getting around that? Well, this is this is the challenge of home working. How you know we have a culture um, at Lawburn of collaboration and working collectively with empowerment and accountability. All of those things that are key to having um, an effective organisation, and we recognise that's going to be more challenging and more difficult to um, instil that culture in our teams if we're remotely dispersed. So we're going to look at our induction. We need to, we've already had a discussion about how we reinforce our induction, how we um, spend more time with people, obviously social distancing at the moment, but engaging them in the culture. And we're also going to be looking as we recruit people and um, how we can ensure that we're recruiting people, not everybody, but most of our um, staff to be aligned to our culture. And we recognise through home working as well in a rural area that we sometimes struggle to attract people because it's quite a distance to travel. Mm. So we're quite keen by home working that we open up at least a national talent pool, if not a global talent pool, to bring some real talented individuals to our organisation. But we're also looking at how we may in the future to ensure we can instil the right culture and the right outcomes for our customers of looking at the components of jobs. So maybe with a home working structure, we can attract different people. So rather than having a 35-hour post, we may have five hours of that post that um, is focused on one area of um, the outcomes that we seek to achieve and split the components down so as we're getting a range of talent to enable us to deliver improved outcomes. 
and also ensuring that the people that we attract want to work within that culture, which we believe in the long term will strengthen and reinforce our culture. But this is a huge piece of work and we've only made the decision to go to home working. So we recognise this is going to be a challenge and we don't have all the solutions, but we're going to start to plan and um, agree our transition plan with the staff. And we've started this with a survey mm. of all of our staff, looking at the barriers and the benefits of home working, how they think we can improve it, what they think that we could add to it, but also what they think they can do differently to improve home working. So we see this as quite an exciting opportunity to strengthen our business and deliver um, stronger outcomes for our customers who, as a social housing provider, have to be our main focus. And I suppose that from a mental health perspective, um, that very issue and also well-being of um, employees is going to be right at the forefront of the mind during this time, isn't it, as you sort of implement these new strategies? Absolutely. And we've been keen to be good role models um, in our executive team. We, you know, we're encouraging people, for example, I travel usually 40 minutes to work. I now use that 40 minutes to go out and exercise, do walking. And we've encouraged all of our staff to think about how they're looking after their health and well-being, to ensure they're more active, to ensure where possible, you know, they're eating healthily. And we're encouraging them to prioritise their health and well-being to ensure that we can um, get the best outcomes for the business, but also that they enjoy, you know, you, if you're healthy and you're engaged in your work, you're going to enjoy it more. So staff get a better work experience, which encourages them also to have a better work-life balance. So it's, it's, it's a big piece of work and we're only starting it and I don't, I don't pretend that we're experts, but we're really keen to get this right and we're working with our staff forum to ensure that we have the right, the right level of um, uh, support in place to um, engage our staff in a way that helps them to manage a good work-life balance and a healthy mental health and health and well-being. And of course, thinking about the sort of next 12 to 18 months as we adjust to the new normal, just before we do wrap things up on the programme today, Lorraine, it's quite clear that bringing in this new sort of way of working is going to be one of the primary focuses for you. Um, But what do you really hope to achieve as a company over that period as you grapple with those challenges? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, as an organisation, we've actually seen our customer um, satisfaction levels increase um, during this crisis, because mm. we've had, because we're not travelling around the rural areas, we can dedicate that time into welfare calls. We've been checking in with our over seventies. We've created a customer support budget to help our residents who, for example, have children with autism, and we've been able to allocate some funds to help them work and um, get some support for their children. So we hope that this new way of working is actually going to help us to become more customer-focused. I'm confident we are very customer-focused, but I just think the lessons that we're taking from the COVID pandemic will help us to be even more aware of what our customers need from us and how we can um, deliver that in different ways, but hopefully more effective ways going forward. And let's certainly hope there'll be some positive news to share on uh, those very things um, in the next uh, few months, Lorraine. In fact, given how informative it's been having you discuss the merits of uh, home working and your views on that and leadership with us today, I think it would be wonderful if in the next uh, year or so we could have you uh, back on the show to uh, see what has changed in the time between. And hopefully there'll be some positive news to share. 
Yeah, absolutely. I would really welcome that. You know, we we got to get people back to work and we've got to get these ideas rolled out. So we'd be really happy um, to share our learning with others. So we'd welcome that opportunity. Thank you. It would be wonderful uh, for myself as well, Lorraine, because it's been a real pleasure having you uh, join us on the uh, the programme. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again in future, do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on, because we're certainly not out of the woods with COVID-19 yet, that's for sure. We certainly aren't. And you too, everybody needs to stay safe and keep um, keep um, doing what we're doing and keep. hopefully everybody will be well and we'll come out of this safely. Exactly right. And to those tuning into this and listening right now, do continue to take care and stay safe and be sensible even with the lifting of restrictions because it really does make a tangible difference in keeping that R8 down and saving lives. I was speaking today to Lorraine Usher, CEO of Lawburn Housing Association. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, but most notably he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a FIFA World Cup after his treble in England's 4-2 win over West Germany at the Old Wembley 54 long years ago. I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Jeff and all of that is of course coming up next. Uh, We're now joined uh, though by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final Sir Jeff Hurst uh, thank you very much for coming on today uh, you're welcome you're welcome good afternoon uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times but when you got out for a duck playing for Essex uh, Jeff what was going through your head at the time <laughs> well of course that's not one of the most asked questions I get although there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do google me realize that I did uh, score nothing for Essex uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool a place called uh, uh, Egbert in in, uh, in Liverpool many many years ago 1962 I think that was so I didn't and... um, yes I, I didn't really feel it at the time it was lucky to be <laughs> playing I guess there were one or two injuries um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports that was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time mm. being stuck between the two sports and I think uh, for those that uh, don't know there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer but um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated no matter what form that comes in when you were at West Ham uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at, at football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and he's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years. I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood. 
and of course a great manager in Ralph Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that caliber can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with with a manager like like uh, Ron uh, there. It's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peters? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players I did. Again, mm-hmm. again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's and I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy in the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business football team in any walk of life to be successful and it's quite evident I was in the motor trade for a long time as well selling car warranties to car dealerships and you could almost tell when you walked into the business uh, in many of the car dealerships you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all and so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to, to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, or at West Ham, your uh, playing came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure... When you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, mm. Naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand. Whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you, it can have a great impact on your <laughs> your career and of course your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict, but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn sheet, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. 
And if you've got people like that in the organization, one thing I have learned and I've taken on my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless of that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could... Uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing, and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be playing in, in the team. But in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think in Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games, and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Allen, so mm. I, I had an impact of thinking I. At that stage, I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think Mm. I was just happy to be I'd be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't. You're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really. Looking back out, mm. so I never really felt. People talk about pressure a lot, and it's there. And people, players talk about. People talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he moved one or two players out. The squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Al showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Uh, we had some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players. Um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. 
And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realise there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, The other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while, and said, "Oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch." So that—I've uh, been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that, and saying, "Yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, look, have a glance round." You know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um... Oh yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stu- stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely, but I can use that now, but it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then, but we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want, you want, you've got time, I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on, go on. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a. a at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm-hmm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. Just, but I, then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did... Uh, um, but then again, if you, put, if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but th- there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you, you were a young man when see, this happened, when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by quick, one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, in, uh, England fans who... Um, I, I think probably... Yeah, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. 
Um, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a uh, helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm-hmm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a, in a natural leader? Um. Well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude. Is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but. There's more than just being good players in football. It's that a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck that's absolutely leadership he'd be the best example of course in in football terms today Uh, easily easily and of course but going back not that long ago Alex Ferguson who's just absolutely Mm. you've got to take him as the first example but Klopp's only done this for a period of time a short period of time but if you look at the 25 26 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United and subsequently since he's gone how they've they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they. Uh, Ron Green was yeah the answer straightforward answer is yes um, they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes I can elaborate as much as you want but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes uh, and with um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so but um, I'm conscious of the um, time um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were very fortunate, and I wouldn't pick any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we we're successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned. 
uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding and uh, and just opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And going back from an earlier earlier question for me, the um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago. Of course, with, with the sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. The wives got on all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. And there was nobody else; they were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big Absolutely. a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great players. We have some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, the the, the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts, but with it. Yes, the word is team. team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk sometimes. Together, everyone achieves more. And that, that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single mind and uh, dedication dedication to the job um, thinking about that 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 role that job in leadership all the time it's a huge part of your life but it, you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level you may you know have a, wait, have a couple of weeks holiday but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm I'm sure there's not uh, they will not switch off for for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's you completely focus. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go with the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.